What a President Craig Reed. This is Ed Hula. Welcome to this edition of Around the Rings Radio. Our guest today needs no introduction. Craig Reedy has been in the spotlight for the past three years in particular as one of the protagonists in the drama about Russia's corrupted anti-doping system. As head of the World Anti-Doping Agency, Reedy has pursued a course that has demanded full compliance from Russia with international standards and practices. And there's more to this saga than simply compliance. There are issues that involve the, the whole way sport approaches anti-doping. Craig Reedy is in his final year of a six-year term as chair of the World Anti-Doping Agency, an IOC member since 1994. Reedy came to the Olympics via badminton, holding a range of leadership positions at the national and international level. In 1992, he began a 14-year run as chair of the British Olympic Association, active in the bid from London for the 2012 Olympic Games. Well, we awoke with news this morning that WADA will not appeal a decision from the Cycling Federation that will allow Chris Froome to try for a fifth Tour de France title. That's just another example of the constant flow of stories we're finding about WADA and the fight against doping. Craig Reedy, thanks very much for joining us today on Around the Rings Radio. It's a pleasure, Ed. Well, let's first talk about the Chris Froome situation here. Um, it's we, we we get into a. It seems like a confusing is one word to put it, or hard for the general public to really understand what's going on with a case like this. Um, Froome has been using asthma medicine, and it's that asthma medicine that's a, a, a concern to testers, but the Cycling Federation says it will regard that as a therapeutic use exemption, and WADA will not appeal that decision, so it pretty much clears the way for him to compete. Is, was this a, a difficult decision or an unusual decision for WADA to reach? Um, I, I think I'd use the word uh, unusual. Um, it's been a complicated case. Uh, I, I have to assume, because I'm not in the science department, I have to assume that uh, we at WADA didn't have any of the evidence presented by Chris Froome to the UCI uh, until uh, about, about the beginning of June this year. Um, so clearly uh, his own people, or his own uh, scientists, uh, were looking at what happened when he produced a positive uh, reading in the Vuelta uh, race uh, in, in Spain last year. And it took them some considerable time to do that. Uh, when it came to us, we checked with our own science people and our own experts uh, the information that came to us and we decided in a very complex situation uh, that uh, on balance uh, we would not an appeal a decision taken by the UCI if they said that he did not commit an adverse analytical finding. Uh, that's based on a number of uh, technical issues. Uh, and normally in that situation, you would ask an athlete uh, to become involved in what's known as a controlled pharmacokinetic study. And in practice, uh, 
we believe, and I think UCI believed as well, that that's actually impossible to do again because it's almost impossible to replicate the unique circumstances that uh, preceded the doping control way back in September. Um, there was an illness, there was a use of medication, there were different doses of salbutamol, which was the drug, uh, and it happened over a course of weeks of very high-intensity competition. So to put all of that together again is impossible. So uh, on balance, I, the phrase we use, that it is uh, not inconsistent uh, with an ingestion of salbutamol within the permitted maximum inhaled dose. So that's what uh, we have said. Uh, in a sense, it backs up the decision that the UCI have taken. Um, we now um, await and see what happens in the world of cycling. So, some have said this is just the establishment, if you will, the sports establishment, making sure that Chris Froome has a, has a chance to compete for a, a fifth Tour de France title. Um, that's not uh, the wider view at all. Uh, we we take every case uh, on its merits, uh, uh, and on on balance, uh, we think that uh, if the sample has been considered by UCI not to be an adverse finding, then I think we could say that this was the the right and fair outcome in what was a very complicated case. Uh, uh, but what you say doesn't surprise me. Yeah, TUEs, the therapeutic use exemptions that are used by athletes, um, it seems like it's a very, very slippery situation. It can be. Hard to explain I, I, to the public, hard to ex- understand for some athletes. Is Well, the, T, the TUE system, therapeutic use exemptions, has been around since the early 1990s, and it, it enshrines the principle that an athlete who, for a recognized and known medical condition, has to take substances which are on the prohibited list. And that TUE system works entirely uh, on the competence and the ethical standards of the medical profession. And it is set up in such a way that a number of independent doctors would see the case and decide whether that medicine was necessary or not. Um, Where it has become really complicated is that after the Rio Games, uh, there were a set of public uh, um, successful hacks of uh, information excuse me, contained on one account that uh, WADA set up for the Rio Games. And that one account uh, listed, I think, somewhere over 300 athletes who had at some time in their previous career, covering years before the Rio Games, had applied for a a TUE. None of that should have been in the public uh, domain. Um, American gold medalists were named, British gold medalists were named, and other countries were named. (coughs) But we, we believe the system is sound and should be protected. But we do need it to be run extremely well by competent doctors. Are there any changes that need to be made to how it's administered? You say competent doctors well, we, are part of it, but uh, any other uh, other changes? 
No, the rules are there. Everybody knows them. Uh, Ed, I, we look at it, and we looked at it not so long ago, and there is a specific TUE committee within the World Anti-Doping Agency, so the thing is kept under review. I mean, one of the ways to do this, and this is a possibility, but it would be complicated, is to say to us uh, that instead of international federations or, for example, major event organizers uh, dealing with TUEs, that it would only be done by WARA. But that would involve me in employing about another 10 scientists to monitor this on a worldwide basis. You know, and at the end of the day, you have to invest your money where it's best used. What's the current status of affairs with Russia and, and WADA? Uh, um, yeah, well, I, the, we have still to purify two conditions on an agreed roadmap that uh, we agreed with Russian authorities and some senior Russian authorities as well. Um, in January 2017. Uh, and the two conditions which have yet to be purified are uh, an acknowledgement by Russia of the uh, results from the investigations that have been undertaken uh, into the allegations of uh, Russian breaches of rules. And secondly, access uh, by WADA uh, uh, to the Moscow laboratory, which we declared uh, to be, uh, we removed its accreditation after the first commission report chaired by Dick Pound way back in November 2015. Um, We are literally a few days ago, we have gone back with a small change to a previous letter from the Russian authorities which involves uh, wording taken almost entirely from the Schmidt Commission, uh, which was accepted by Russian authorities in terms of the disqualification of the Russian Olympic Committee in Pyeongchang. And we have made uh, hopefully helpful suggestions uh, on the access to the laboratory situation, which we think would make it easier for them to agree. So I would hope to get responses to these proposals within, you know, pretty quickly. I suspect it might be slowed down a little bit every time the football team won, wins a football match in the World, uh, the World Cup, which seems to be a big success at the moment. Yeah, we'll have to wait until the weekend if that's the, uh, the rule of thumb here for, uh, for that match to be over. But uh, wh- have, you, have you noticed a change in attitude in Russia, a greater willingness to, to work with WADA and accept some of the hard, you know, hard choices that they have to make? Well, what we have actually done, if you if you look back and read through the the, the the Commission reports, the Pound report, and then again the McLaren report, it was quite clear that the Russian Anti-Doping Agency were involved on a daily basis with breaking the system and breaking the rules. And what we've been able to do, and all the changes actually have been funded by the Russian authorities, not by WADA, we've been able to put two outside independent international experts into Moscow, one still there working with uh, Rusada as it rebuilds itself. They've put together an independent board, they've appointed an independent chairman, they've appointed a new director general, 
and they are actually doing much good work and, and, and there's been an enormous progress uh, as far as the technicalities uh, are concerned. What is sticking uh, the situation is that the two conditions we talked about a moment ago, I think some people regard these rather more as political issues. Well, whether they're political or not, it was agreed that by everybody that they would be purified, and they haven't been yet. And it's those last two which are the sticking points at the moment. But Rusara, which now does testing, we've renewed its ability to test, is doing a good job in uh, in, in, in that enormous country. Um, they've, they've actually solved a whole range of problems that uh, presented to, to them simply on the size of the country. And it's just about the best thing that we can do to help athletes the world over is to make sure that there is a reliable and a good system working in Russia. Uh, and that will protect clean athletes better than anything else. What's needed to avoid complications with, with Tokyo, which is now coming up in well, I th- two years Yeah, time. I think the answer to that is that the IOC would not want to go through again at another Olympic Games uh, the exercise that they had to go through for Pyeongchang. So, you know, to that extent, there is a, a bit of uh, pressure on us from uh, the uh, the sports movement to see how quickly we can resolve this issue, I mean, and I'm I'm very happy to do that. But there are also people I'm very happy to try to resolve it. But it's not it's not easy since we are a hybrid organisation of partly governments and partly sport. It's not everybody takes the same view. Um, but if these two uh, conditions uh, are set out, could be purified quickly, then we could uh, confirm the renewed compliance of Rusada um, almost immediately. Uh, but it, 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 is, it is an issue as, I guess, qualification events start happening for Tokyo. Um, whether Russians will be certified, able to compete fairly in, in those events. Um, how quickly do you expect to be able to resolve this so that we're not coming to the brink of another Olympic Games and questions still have to be answered? Yes, I, I, I accept that. It's not, a, it's not a happy situation. We don't want to have to go through the hoops uh, that were put in place for Pyeongchang. Um, I wish I knew the answer to your question. Uh, uh, I mean, if I could say I think we'll get a good response on Russia in two weeks, it would be happy. But that I can't say at the moment. I wait. We get, we're getting closer all the time. Uh, clearly, it makes sense to wind this up as quickly as we can uh, and then get on with uh, get on with sport because, quite honestly, the whole Russian mess has poisoned sport over the last few years in, in many different ways, not least for assumptions and allegations on Russian athletes, not least for the possibility of events being held in Russia. All of that can stop. Uh, if they would only agree to meet the two conditions that have been set for them. We're talking with Craig Reedy, who's president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. What, what lessons has, has WADA learned from this experience with Russia moving forward? Um, uh, oh, well, 
I, I suppose two things. First of all, uh, and, and, and that is probably to, you know, watch everybody even ever more closely than we we watched before. Secondly, to make sure that uh, you have your regulations and your rule book up to date, and that I hope has been done by the new standard on compliance. Uh, when we will be auditing and monitoring the compliance of uh, countries all around the world, you know, and, and we can target them uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, and I think, too, uh, quite honestly, that we were, I don't know if unlucky is the right word, but if you're going to start on an exercise of having to hold uh, commissions of inquiry, it's probably best not to do it with the biggest country in the world, uh, on, on, on the other end of the uh, of the rope, um, I mean, it would have been easier to do this with a much simpler situation. Uh, this has been very, very complicated, and I hope that the rest of the world, looking in, thinks oh, we don't want under any circumstances to go there. So, the lessons are being learnt across sport. And then, the the situation has led to some strains with the with the IOC. With 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 water, um, are are you more comfortable with how it's going with the IOC right now, or the two organizations seeing more closely? Yeah, well, I have tri- I, yeah, I've tried very hard, uh, certainly for the last uh, uh, I suppose two years since I, my my mandate was renewed to be as in in as, uh, in every way I can be to be an independent president um and to retain that independence uh, in any discussions between the sports movement and uh, and and governments and sometimes I get pretty irritated when people claim that I am not. I am independent. And I think, in fact, I know that the IOC respects that uh, position. Uh, I speak to them regularly because, quite honestly, the top people in the IOC have just as much, if not more, experience of the major problems with anti-doping than, than anybody else. Uh, I mean, I was in, uh, I was in Lausanne uh, only only last week and had quite a long meeting with the president of the IRC. He knows the situation. He wants it resolved. Uh, and we will try to do that as quickly as we can. Uh, I guess if you have a good, involved conversation with the IOC president, that's a good sign. It's a sign that you're talking and working things out. Well, they are our oldest and founding partner. Uh, the WADA was founded in 1999. For the first two years, it was funded entirely by the IOC, uh, and they are very much at the, at, you know, in, in, in the front line of all this. They understand the difficulties. Uh, they are confronted with a number of difficulties. Pyeongchang was a was a very good example. They would rather not do it again, and and. and in that sense, I, I agree with them, uh, but they do understand quite clearly that uh, there is an issue to be resolved, and I'm in the middle of it. Uh, the WADA will elect a new chair next year. This is a representative from the governments that uh, provide some of the funding for, for WADA. You've been the sport representative for the past six years here. Um, how will that change happen? How will that election take place? So far, we've heard from two candidates. Possibly more might step forward. Yeah. 
Well, the the, the WADA statutes uh, provide for that. Uh, our first president was Dick Pound, who support, followed for six years by John Fahey, former Australian uh, finance minister. Uh, I will do the next six, probably, uh, unless something happens uh, before November next year. Um, and thereafter, uh, it, it will almost certainly be a representative from the public authorities. Uh, the, the IOC have been made the case to us, to our governance working group, that they would prefer uh, to have a completely independent president, uh, n- not necessarily coming from either side. But that has been resisted, I think, by the in fact, no, I think I know by the public authorities. So I'm pretty certain that it will be a public authority figure. How they will choose that particular uh, person uh, is very much their choice. Uh, traditionally, they have nominated one person. Traditionally, there has only been one uh, nomination. It's much easier for the Olympic movement to do that than it is public authorities. And if you look around the world, uh, um, I suspect that it's probably Europe's choice um, for the six years starting on 1st of uh, January uh, 2020. Um, um, But how the Europeans will do that, uh, they will have to decide themselves. And there are, as you know, two candidates have already said that they would be prepared to stand. And how could this change in leadership affect WADA? Will there be any change in the direction that the agency could take? I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, they, They chair an executive committee, they chair a board, they have a first class staff behind them. You know what we do. What we what we do won't change overnight. All the most, almost all the planning and uh, regulatory work is done or is underway. For example, we're revising the World Anti-Doping Code. Uh, that happens probably about once every six years. And so the new president will take on board uh, a code which will come into effect uh, at the beginning of. 2021. Um, And we'll have to make sure that everybody is in line with that code. So I don't see that there will be any major changes. Uh, uh, I mean, there were no major changes when John Fahey was president. I don't see that there will be major changes when a new government uh, appointee takes over as president. What's your view of the funding for WADA? How is it going? Are you getting enough from the public authorities? The IOC always seems to be willing to step forward and provide its share. It was a struggle in the early days to get the governments, the public authorities, to contribute their fair share. Um, what needs to be done budget-wise for Wada? Do you well, have the money much, you need? M- yeah, much of it has been done. I mean, you know, one, it's one of the questions, how much do you want? The answer is, you know, how, how much is possible all around the world. What we've actually been able to do, uh, and it has come uh, almost entirely from uh, the energy of the public authorities themselves, is that uh, I remember when I was effectively the treasurer, I used to struggle like hell to get an increase in contribution of 1%. Governments insisted after the whole Russian affair uh, imploded on us uh, that they wanted more work done. Uh, the compliance issues is the, uh, probably the biggest one, the monitoring of it. 
and that involved uh, you know more revenue to to do the work that was required and the public authorities have now agreed that uh, over the next four years we will get a, a contribution increase of eight percent compound um and that will be matched by the uh, sports movement. Well, that's a major improvement, and it should take our total budget up from roughly 30 million a year to close to 45 million a year. And that will allow us to do everything that people have said that we must do. That's encouraging. Uh, I'm also looking at raising uh, alternative funds uh, in the marketplace particularly with uh, reference to the close relationships we have with the pharmaceutical industry. So efforts are being made to beef up uh, the revenue, but the the important part has been uh, the work by the public authorities to make a sensible uh, series of increases in contribution. And the next thing they have to do now is to look at how they divide their contributions amongst all the governments of the world. I mean, that was settled way back in 2000. 2001. So it's now 17 years out of date, and the same working group is putting its head together to see how that can be resolved, because things have changed dramatically. I mean, for the, the best example I can give you is that at the moment Britain um, pays about three times more than China. Well, that doesn't seem to me to be correct, uh, and I'm sure, and I know that the Chinese find it as slightly surprising as well. So that kind of work is underway. So I'm much more comfortable about resources than I was before. Craig Reedy is our guest on Around the Rings Radio. Uh, a few questions to close out here about the IOC and your role as an IOC member, some observations about uh, the business of the Olympics. Uh, first of all, the Olympic bid process, a lot has changed from the way it was when London bid for the Olympic Games, and you've been involved with the coordination or the evaluation commission for the, uh, for the Tokyo Olympics. Um, you, 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 you endorse the, the changes that have been made to the way cities are, are bidding and the way IOC goes after cities bidding for the Games. I suppose the answer to that, uh, Ed, is not entirely. I mean, I understand, uh, particularly for the Winter Games, uh, I understand that there has been difficulty in uh, certain parts of the world to generate the necessary enthusiasm. That certain part of the world is, is Europe, which is actually the home of winter sport. Uh, this is where it all started, but actually getting uh, uh, European governments to, to come in behind uh, bids has been proved difficult, and uh, many of them have uh, a system of referendum which puts the power in, 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 in people's hands. And uh, while I have no intellectual argument with that, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that saying to these people, well, don't worry, we will make sure the bidding process is shorter, we'll make sure it's cheaper. Uh, where I think it makes sense is we will work with you more closely and try to align what you are doing for your country with what, what sport wants. That's fine. But, and my but is, I think we've rather lost uh, the ability to say,
sell to bidding cities and bidding countries the benefits that can accrue from a successful Olympic bid. And if I use London as, as an example, I, I, I mean, I think you will remember from your days in London, you know, we took a, a scene of industrial devastation um, in the east end of London and turned it into a magic place. Uh, now, that involved huge investment by both central government and by London government, um, but it's been an outstanding success. And figures were produced within the last few months that within the six boroughs uh, which hosted the Games in London, there have been 110,000 new jobs created since the Games. Now, that's a terrific legacy uh, to East London, uh, and I know the projections for the future uh, are, are, are much higher. <clears throat> and somehow I think we've got to get the message across which says you really can do something for your city, for your country, uh, if you host the Games properly. The Summer Games seem to have less of an issue because we have Paris, uh, and Paris is a magic city and I think they will do it very well and they have Los Angeles um, major, major changes in, in that city over the years and they have, as far as I can see practically everything built already so but, but there hasn't been the pressure on those two uh, uh, summer bidding cities but the winter cities have, have been an issue and we really, I suppose, need to get uh, a winter games back into the, the sort of European heartland sooner rather than later. And Tokyo 2020, you were the chairman of the IOC Evaluation Commission, and what we yep. have in Tokyo is, uh, well, a little bit different than the plans that you were reviewing when you were chairing that commission a few years ago. Uh, Tokyo has had to cut costs and 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 look at look at the long term without. I guess the benefits of Olympic Agenda 2020, which uh, was not in effect at the time they were bidding. Yes, I think that's probably true. Uh, I, I began to wonder whether you know we got it very wrong as an evaluation commission. I don't think we did. There, I think there has been uh, an understanding that it is possible to reduce costs of organising the games, and the IOC have worked quite hard on that subject. I mean, then that wouldn't be that would be of interest to any organising city. Secondly, I think there were new building regulations in Japan, <clears throat> principally to cover the uh, uh, seismic problems that are sometimes caused in Japan. You need to have better building standards in the event of uh, you know earthquakes and whatever, and that pushed up the construction costs dramatically uh, so they decided that they would do everything they could to pull them back I'm still convinced that the Japanese and uh, people and, and Tokyo itself uh, will run very good games in, 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 in 2020 and I mean the, the whole history of bidding and delivery has shown that to be um, to, you know the, the changes were made the one change I can think of in London was we got ourselves involved in the principle of demountable buildings not temporary, demountable and that seemed to be a very good idea because we could take them down and send them somewhere else and use them but in practice, it turned out to be a little bit more expensive than we thought. And secondly, I found it impossible to sell a 25,000 demountable basketball stadium to anybody. 
Um, originally and perhaps naively I thought you might sell it to Rio but that didn't work um, so things change uh, I think Tokyo will do it well and I think the IOC are very well aware of the issues uh, A in the bidding process and B on their work that's been done or what they call their new norm which is designed to save costs The uh, the, the, the noble sport of badminton is part of your, your background uh, active in in, in badminton for many, many years, but the the cruel sport of golf is also one of your one of your favorites and you've followed the emergence of golf onto the Olympic program. What do you think is the uh, uh, the future of golf? It's set set for Tokyo, but do you think it's got a chance beyond there? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I, I didn't just watch it. I have to say, I actually worked quite hard for it. Um, and I did it for uh, maybe a slightly different reason than the, the standard, which is, you know, what can the Olympics do for the sport? Uh, my argument was, what should, what could the sport do for the Olympics? Because I think golf <clears throat> has an ethos and a standard of behaviour uh, which I find attractive, and I thought we, we were a better programme because of it. It covers a whole range of, of uh, ages. Um, it's absolutely gender neutral. Uh, and uh, at the moment, if you look back to Rio, uh, I think I'm correct in saying that the most active facility that was built in the Rio Games today is the golf course. Now, if you look too at the television coverage of the last day of Olympic golf in Rio, in Britain, the reading was an audience of 10.2 million people. And that is three times greater than golf has ever had on any golf television in British history. So there's something about the Olympics. And I think NBC had a really outstanding audience figures as well. So I think golf was a huge success. I think that those uh, senior golfers who decided not to come on whatever uh, excuse they made, like the Zika virus, when nobody could find a mosquito anywhere near real, I think that was all a mistake. And I don't think anybody now will run the risk of missing the golf competition in, uh, in, in Tokyo. And I haven't heard anybody in around the Olympic world saying that there is any question mark against our two newest sports, which are golf and, and, and rugby sevens. Golf will be uh, uh, golf will be good in Paris. Just this weekend, the French Open has been held on the course, the National Course, which is a spectacular place and where the Ryder Cup will be played this year. And it will be a wonderful Olympic venue in uh, in in uh, 2024. Tokyo have the a very good country club where they're going there, and I think from memory. Uh, Los Angeles are using, uh, Ed, I'm going to need your help here. Riviera. Uh, Riviera. Yep. And there's another world-class golf course. So the facilities are there. The players are terrific. Uh, the boys are great. The girls are great. I don't see any reason why it shouldn't become a permanent feature of the Olympic program. Uh, the trouble is it's a good many years uh, too late for me to even think of entering. And even then, I was never, a, I was never good enough. Well, you're going to, in a couple of weeks, just days away from the, uh, from the Open, coming back to 
Scotland. You must be excited about that, Carnoustie hosting the uh, championship this year. Yeah, I'll be through in my little house in St Andrews at the time of the uh, the Open. I'll go across to Carnoustie for a couple of days, but it's a, it's a very short and easy journey. Um, and I missed a couple of events uh, in Lausanne. I'll be in Lausanne at the beginning of that week, uh, working on the, I think it's the IOC's pension fund or something. But I'm coming back, and I'll be I'll be keeping an eye on uh, on on Carnusti. It's a glorious golf course. Uh, I'm told it's going to be in splendid condition. Um, and this long, dry spell of weather we have. Um, I suspect they're probably watering the rough at the moment to make sure that you've got to hit the ball straight. It's a tough, tough world you live in. Tough world. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, things have to be done. And I don't believe that you should, uh, if you volunteer to take things on, uh, you should walk away from it. You should try to do it properly, try to resolve the issues. And that's what I'm happy to keep trying to do for uh, what looks now like a time-limited period. Craig Reedy, thanks very much for joining us today on Around the Rings Radio. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Ed, great to talk to you. And um, as I think Sam Sneed once said, if you think you're swinging slow, swing slower. (laughs) Be relaxed, be relaxed. Craig Reedy, thanks for joining us on this edition of ATR Radio. I'm Ed Hula. For 25 years, your best source of news about the Olympics has been... AroundTheRings.com. 